you've joined us over the summer, which I know one or two have, my name's James. Um, the team have done a cracking job. Lou and I have just had a bit of time out. Um, great to see you. Uh, next Sunday, please don't come at 10 o'clock. Um, you'll miss the good bits. Um, and you'll be far too early for the next good bits. Um, so we're back at 9 o'clock and 11 o'clock next, next weekend. We do refreshments between the services. Um, we uh, make no apologies for loads and loads of worship because the church is about Jesus. It belongs to him, and uh, we're just playing our part. But we're also passionate about pushing into God's presence, and also um, we're passionate about the Scriptures changing us, speaking to us, refining us, correcting us, making us more and more like Jesus. Uh, so Pam's going to come and uh, bring us our reading this morning. Why don't we welcome Pam? Thank you, Pam. Good morning. So our reading from God's wonderful word this morning is from the Gospel of Luke, um, chapter 9, and it's verses 10 to 27, and reading from the NRSV. Excuse me one minute whilst I organize myself. <laughs> Give you time to find it in your Bibles. <laughs> So Luke 9, 10 to 27. When the apostles returned, they gave an account to him of all they had done. Taking them with him, he withdrew by himself to a city called Bethsaida. But the crowds were aware of this and they followed him. And welcoming him, welcoming them, he began speaking to them about the kingdom of God and curing all those who had need of healing. Now the day was ending, and the twelve came to him and said to him, send the crowd away, that they may go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find lodging and get something to eat. For, there were, for we are in this desolate place. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. And they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless perhaps we go buy food for all these people, for there are about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down to eat in groups of about 50 each. They did so and had them sit down. Then he took the five loaves and the fish and looking up to heaven, he blessed them broke them and kept giving them to the disciples to set before the people. And they all ate and were satisfied. And the broken pieces which they had left over were picked up, 12 baskets full. And it happened while he was praying alone. The disciples were with him and he questioned them saying, who do people say that I am? They answered and said, John the Baptist, and others, Elijah, but others that one of the prophets of old has risen again. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, 
the Christ of God. But he warned them and instructed them not to tell anyone, saying, the Son of Man must suffer these things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses and forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. But I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. I just pray, Lord, that that word would just take root in our hearts and our lives and would just ignite and would spread and would grow. Amen. Hey, Dad. Yeah. Can you turn my frozen TV dinner gourmet? Are you serious right now, bro? Of course I can. First step. Bread goes in the oven. Dry this. Time to take out potatoes. Oh, look at that. Slide it in. Crumble, crumble. Salt, flour, cornmeal, nutmeg, eggs, butter, honey, vegetable oil, buttermilk, ginger. If you don't have rhythm, you're going to damage your body all these years. Corn and chop it up. Corn. Mix everything together. Got some molds. In. All this out. Oranges goes down. You know what? It looks like dog food. I just have to say. Brown sugar here. Mix this egg yolk, cider vinegar. Wow. Potato starch. Mix, mix, mix. Slowly. Ooh. Sauce is ready. I have all the pork ribs going down. One bread coming out. Ooh. Buttery. Drizzle, drizzle, drizzle. That's how I turn this TV dinner to gourmet. Maybe, maybe you deserve an apology from quite a, a reverent moment, suddenly quite an abrupt handbrake turn. But um, there, was a, <laughs> there was a thought behind it, but it made me realize I, it's a bit of a guilty pleasure. I love watching these cooking videos, but maybe it's, um, it highlights my age bracket where it needs to be in 60 seconds or less. But I love it because particularly this channel, which is from my understanding, is just a guy with a gourmet chef dad who kind of just preys upon his great skills. But it continually reveals that actually with great skill, our meager ingredients can be transformed into something spectacular. There's Ahmed. <laughs> and then of course, there are limitations to this analogy. I think the, the difference is in, uh, in these videos, we kind of get a, a glimpse behind the curtain of what goes on. Um, in the great mystery. But this morning, really, what I want to press into, diving into this passage, 
is really to remind us the necessity for faith. And also just to, to kind of unpack what can happen when we have it. What can happen when we have faith? Not just faith in what, but, but most importantly, faith in who. And as James has already touched on, this notion of, of consecration, what we find revealed in this passage is what happens when we consecrate all that we have. And also what happens when we consecrate all that we are. Does that sound all right? Well, Holy Spirit, be with us now. Lead us into all truth, we pray. And by this gift of your, your word, your scriptures that are still with us today, speak to us afresh. Amen. And um, so a few of us, we've been, we've been reflecting on this journey through Luke's gospel. And uh, particularly getting together with the staff, Patrick and I have been talking about the fact that we cannot avoid the miracles. We cannot avoid the, the supernatural, all that is altogether impossible without God that, that Luke narrates through his Gospels. We can't avoid them, or nor should we. And, I don't know, you'll, you'll see it. Scholars of all sorts, Christians, will try and play this like exegetical gymnastics and do all these backflips and explain it all away. But it's entirely futile. Because the miracles of Jesus are, are the lens by which we are to understand God revealed in the Gospels. And I think that's what Luke is, is continuously highlighting to us. That actually Jesus is, is coming, the miracles, they butt up against us because Jesus is coming with this entirely different kingdom which confronts all of our sensibilities. It confronts all of our worldviews and beliefs. And it should and that's part of the good news itself. So as we, find, as we pick up this narrative itself, like last week he, he gathered together his disciples and we talked about how he, he gave them all power and authority. And so in, in last week's reading, even has little lines, kind of alludes to the success of their missions trip. So we might say that uh, the apostles all return, probably quite like G'd up with themselves. They're... Um, they like the confidence is riding quite high. And then Jesus, he takes them away on a little like leader's retreat. And even the language used, it's also um, some, some translations talk about slipped away. And it's this language of like fleeing from persecution. And even the way in which Luke narrates it, that, that this town of Bethsaida, it wouldn't have been well known. So they slip into obscurity to share all the war stories, to kind of reflect, debrief about all, the, all that happened. But even then, they are inconvenienced and interrupted. And rather than Jesus and his disciples kind of putting up boundaries and keeping them at an arm's length, we see Jesus as the consummate host who he entertains their neediness despite that inconvenience, despite it jarring up and going against the plans that he had. And so we might question, actually, you know what, when we are squeezed, what's going to come out? When we're in a hurry, when we're in a rush, when we've got our plan and we are interrupted and inconvenienced, what is going to come out? Are we still going to revert back to, to being like Jesus and, and hosting people? As you question, well, how did, the, how did the disciples respond to this change? 
Maybe you say, actually, you know what? They really liked it when it was just the 13 of them. It was just like them and Jesus hanging out. They had them all to themselves. And now suddenly they have to share because things are changing. Things are different. But will they welcome that change? Will they trust Jesus? And really what is confronting here is all the failures of the disciples coming out. And actually we should lean into that and like take it as a, a vicarious lesson that we can learn from. Because the disciples, they look at their condition and they start making a plan somewhat separate from the God of the universe who is in their midst in Jesus. The source of all wisdom and knowledge, the ultimate problem solver, they don't go to him, rather they look to each other and they start making a plan. They actually, they look at their condition in the wilderness without any resources, and they use that as a grounds for, for dismissing them and saying, not today. And how many times we look to our own condition, and we use that as grounds for not hosting others. And again, I, I tried to highlight this last week, how Luke is the narrator. He's kind of spotlighting certain things. And I think he frames this entire narrative as he's talking about a crowd in the desert. He's talking about these people who are gathered in a place without food, but they are still hungry. And of course, it's supposed to conjure up images. It's supposed to be a reenactment of the way in which God would feed Israel through the wilderness, through their exodus. And so rather than Jesus seeing their, their lack of resources, he sees that condition, that lack of resources, as, as an opportunity for God's glory to be revealed more and more. And so he turns it back to the disciples and he presents them with a test. And he's like, so you feed them. And again, time after time, we see this of God giving his people tests. And tests are, someone explained it quite simply, there's tests and there's trials. Tests are there to challenge us and give us opportunity to grow into all that we're supposed to be. They are uncomfortable and challenging and hard, but it's a gift from God because it gives us an opportunity to grow. Whereas trials, not trials, traps, traps are there to trip us up, to destroy us. Traps aren't what God presents us, but rather it's the enemy who provides us with traps. God provides us with tests. So he says, you feed them. And again, we see the failure of the disciples, all his followers, because they look in the wrong place. Their constraint, you might say, is, is not a lack of resources, but rather a lack of faith. How many times is our, our first response was like, well, I can't do it because this, this, and this, rather than, well, I could do it if this, this, and this. It's not just positivity, but it's a lack of faith. And so what we see in Jesus is, is he is the one facing this challenge, models a response in faith. And so he takes the meager resources they have, and then he looks to heaven. One of my favorite Psalms, Psalm 121, says, I look to the hills. That's where my help comes from. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Jesus models faith because he, he looks to where actually help can come from. Rather than just merely gazing upon his lack, he looks at where there is abundance. So we might wonder that actually if these disciples would have rather looked to heaven first, just like Jesus did, would they have been better equipped to fulfill this command? And again, this 
you have to hold intention because it's, it's neither being entirely heavenly minded nor our own human resources that are ever going to be enough. It's ever going to be enough to transform our communities. It's ever going to be enough to, to bring the kingdom of God. But we must consider both what we have in our hands, but also who we have in our midst. And I hope this isn't just like pedantic semantics, trying to like tickle your ears. But it's actually, you know what? What we have is important. These like physical resources, God wants to use it, but he also wants us to be aware of, of who it is who is in our midst. The most common promise and good news is, is God simply saying that I will be with you. It sounds so simple, but actually even in, in modern society and in the darkest of times, that's all people want. It's just the presence of someone else. And that is God's continued promise to us. It does lead us because we're reminded who is in our midst. So then actually the call is to consecrate what we have to God so he can take these meager resources that we do have and turn them into something magnificent. Does that make sense? And so there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. It, it. Luke describes it as the crowd ate and were filled. Whereas other, I don't know, you read like children's Bibles or you read like the other Gospels and they might uh, make bigger emphasis on the fact that it was just a boy who brought these. But Luke wants to highlight and make the most important thing that actually there was an abundance. There was no lack. That is the miracle that occurred here because it is consistent with the promise of the Messiah. The promise of the Messiah is always about this banquet of abundance, more than enough. And liberals will try and explain it away. And you're like, well, you know what? It was just because everyone shared and they were content. Or sometimes they'll do some real gymnastics and start doing all backflips and twists and say, well, you know what? At the start, it was because their hearts were hardened and only a few people brought these few fish and loaves. But as the, as the miracle like, was that Jesus softened their hearts and then eventually what they had withheld, they then brought forward. But you could believe that or you could believe that actually this is Jesus coming as God, not merely the, the bringer of good news, but the good news himself, the one who, who brings a new kingdom. This is a miraculous, something that is entirely impossible by human hands alone. And so the disciples, they find that the, the success of their previous missions trip is seemingly overshadowed by their failure to grasp the God who was in their midst. The God who miraculously empowered and supplied all their needs in the mission field was the same God who was with them for a picnic, supplying all their needs. Luke's point is reminding the readers that it is the same God who, who led his people through the wilderness into the promised land who is with them here in the form of Jesus. It's the God of the spectacular, is the same God as the God of the ordinary every day. And for us, as we read it today, we, like, we need to be confronted and challenged and remember that actually the same God we read about who, who parts seas and, and delivers manna every day, the same God that performs all these mighty miracles, raises the dead, 
feeds thousands is the same God who is with us today. The same God we read about is the same God who's with us today. So after a quiet time, maybe they've had time to reflect on Jesus. He kind of then confronts them with another decision. So he's like, okay, people have speculated about who I am. You've had a front row seat to all that's been going on. Like, who do you say I am? Because it's not enough to merely speculate on who other people say Jesus is, who, who he could be. Jesus confronts him. He says, who do you say I am? Who... Or what are we going to pin our hopes to? It's not just about like knowing all the different options, but it is about making a decision of saying, actually, no, I do believe that the Jesus that I read about here is the same God who is with me in our midst, who is the Messiah, the Savior. And even there, Paul, Peter, he... He says, actually, you know what? You are the Messiah of God. The first time that human lips in Luke's, Luke's gospel has declared it. And then Jesus, in this roundabout way of saying, yes, you're right, this is who I am, he, he presents this paradoxical, paradoxical logic of, of what the Messiah is and will be, constantly kind of correcting their misunderstandings. This logic of victory is going to come through death, not just merely through, through overpowering. But I think this mystery of Jesus as the Messiah will become clear in the coming chapters as, as the journey of Jesus directs itself towards Jerusalem, in which he'll be rejected, killed, and eventually rise again. And there's all these little, like, hidden clues that much smarter, more intelligent academics have had to highlight for me. But we see throughout Luke's narrative, whenever Jesus is praying, it is to foreshadow this identity crisis which is going on. And what we see is there is a, a both a, throw out some fancy words for you, a Christological and apostolic identity crisis going on. There is a, a confusion about who Jesus is and what that will mean for those around him. There's a confusion about who his envoys, disciples, followers, apprentices, who they are and who they should be. And it reminds us when there's such confusion about identity, the answer is prayer. The answer is actually seeking the one from whom wisdom comes. It's through prayer. I talked last week, actually, how much there is this crisis so frequently talked about of discipleship, but both prayer and discipleship need to go hand in hand, because both our, our prayer life and our life of discipleship, they can't end with church attendance. They need to extend past this, this short time that we have in our morning, because of coming back in. The identity of Jesus is important because it impacts our identity. That's why it's important for Jesus to, to reveal his Christological identity, like who he, who he truly is. You might even say that, that Peter is the first one to declare, you are the Messiah of God, you are the Savior. 
he also utters dangerous words because he links his own fate with, with that of Jesus. And what we find in church history is Jesus, like many of his followers, paid the ultimate price to proclaim that Jesus is, is the Lord. Because that simple thing where we can truly understand who Jesus is, then we can better understand who we are as well. That's why there's this necessity to, to gather and pray. So it's through receiving from God that we can better understand our, our identity. I think, and I don't say it to be like cynical or, or negative or kind of kind of lead us down a dark path, but the national church is in, a, in an identity crisis where we've forgotten who we are truly supposed to be. That's the impetus of why we're going to be gathering more and more frequently to pray. That's why it's important. The church needs to remember who we are, not merely a friend of the world, but rather one who, who brings good news, the best news of an entirely different kingdom. Again, it's another passage where there's a lot to unpack. So I'm flying through it, talking faster than I normally would. But Jesus then, he, he unpacks. He's kind of said, well, this is what it means to be a Messiah, that I will be not garnered with praise and adoration, but rather I'll be rejected and scorned and I'll suffer and die. And he says, so... If you want to come along for the ride, this is what's going to be required of you. But he doesn't just say it to an elite few. It's not just a, a select, it's everyone. And he said to them all, this isn't just for some of us, but it's for all of us. It is what you'd say is a prescriptive principle for the church still today. It's a requirement, not for like the SAS of the church but it's just radically ordinary following Jesus. There's nothing special about it. But he says it is going to entail self-denial. Not exclusively, but probably quite prominently, that will include like financial and material sacrifice. It'll include all sorts of sacrifices. There's a simple logic. Every yes is going to be a thousand no's. It's going to be daily cross-bearing. Day in, day out, recommitment to Jesus. Every day waking up, deciding, you know what, I'm going to follow you today. Again, I keep repeating it, but I love it. At our, our conference, Josh used that line. Just actually, we need to be basic, Barry. Consistently practicing the basics, not just sexy Steve, who's occasionally performing spectacular deeds. I'm sure God will present the opportunity. It's just consistently practicing the basics to follow Jesus. He says, follow me. And whether that was, you could say it's just that rabbinical tradition of, of walking with Jesus, or as someone coined it, to, to be with Jesus, to become like him and to do what he did. But I can't help but feel actually Jesus is inviting people to follow him. Remember this occasion someone was leading us in this uh, kind of a, a prayer meditation guiding it and I was I was looking at Jesus and they're saying okay what does he what does he look like what is he saying to you and in that moment I remember having this image of Jesus just turning away and walking away and I couldn't help but feel like well this is inconsistent with the God of the scriptures why would God ever walk away from me his promises I'll never leave you or forsake you 
And the Holy Spirit just reminded me, he's saying, follow me. How many times do we think God has deserted me? He's left me in this desert. What if it's just an invitation to follow him? But again, this prophetic voice um, I heard speaking recently said, actually, you know what? The church today, we need to grow in our capacity for pain. The, the capacity for pain that we will experience as we present a message that is contrary to that of the world. A capacity for pain in which we will cause others as we upset them. Because that's the invitation to follow Jesus. Particularly in where this is situated in Luke's narrative, because just as Jesus is about to turn and, and head towards Jerusalem, where he will face suffering, death, will we follow Jesus there as well? So yeah, there is a, a necessity for faith. Faith in the one who we are denying ourselves for, who we are dying for and following. But also you, you can't help but, but consider actually what can happen when I do have faith? What can happen when I, when I do follow Jesus? And he employs this paradoxical reasoning. He says, if you are willing to, to lose your life for my name's sake, that's where you may find it. Apparently, the, the original language he, they would have been using is what scholars consider an untranslatable Hebrew word for life. It's the complete sum of all your being. There's no distinction between it, but it's all that you are. Is your mind, body, spirit. It's all that you stand for, all that you, you represent. It's all that you desire. It's your orientation, like politically, sexually, what food you like, everything. It's your motivations, your preference, your comforts, all of that. If you're willing to let that die and lay it down, that's where you may find something infinitely better. Because it is to lay all of that down. It's a complete reorientation of our being is a death that we must die as we follow Jesus. It's the death of our mindsets, our beliefs. It's where everything is so utterly purified and, and consecrated for his purposes that we may find the good stuff. And Jesus, he, say, he says, this kind of uneven ultimatum before his followers, he's saying like, do you want salvation found in me in the, in the goodness, trueness, fullness, and abundance of life? Or are you, do you just want to take hold of this world, which he has constantly been narrating as like errant and on a, a path for destruction? And it really isn't much of a decision. Because the Christian, Christian message is that actually death leads to life. It gives way to new life because of Jesus. So what starts in renunciation and self-denial actually is going to find its completion in joy. It's dying to self. What we're going to do later on is baptize people very much. They're going to enter into a watery grave and rise again, representing this new life found in Jesus. And I said earlier, this, that YouTube video we started with, there was limitations to it. But limitations because we don't get to gaze behind and see how it all works. But also the fact that it's sort of this upcycling and a, and a renovation. 
It's taking these meager resources and like using them to, to make something great. But actually what we find in salvation in Jesus is something entirely new. It's not just he, he takes what we had and makes it better. He gives us something entirely new. And so we are constantly confronted with that decision in Jesus. It's quite black or white. People don't like it. Like, give me a little bit of gray in the middle. But Jesus, he doesn't allow us for that. Jesus reveals himself as the God, the God of his people throughout the Old Testament, the one who liberates people from all their enslavement and leads them into the promised land. Jesus presents his followers, all that are present there with him, and he says, will you identify with me? Will you distance yourself from me? Will you trust in me or will you trust and follow after this material world that is fading away? I love this line at the end of 1 Timothy 6. Because he tells Timothy, command them, preach the gospel so they may take hold of that which is truly life. That's the offer that we constantly have. So I think the question for us all afresh today is will we present ourselves like this bread and fish will we consecrate ourselves to his plans and his purposes because it is by his power all that he is that the the great mess of our lives can be transformed by the greatness of his glory church are we daily afresh today willing to to consecrate ourselves so that we may encounter heaven more and more we may take hold of the good stuff and true life but also remembering that although revival starts with me, it doesn't end with me either. So are we willing to consecrate all that we have so that heaven can be released more and more? That's the Jesus who we're confronted with in all his graciousness, all his kindness. He's saying, let me take hold of your life and make something spectacular with it.